Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Bovey and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. Welcome to episode 20 of Odeon Capital Conversations. On this episode, we'll be looking at the mounting pressure on the U.S. Federal Reserve to control surging prices, white-hot inflation, and at the Fed's options. Dick Beauvais has new numbers on price rises across different sectors from energy and food and with his analysis of cryptocurrencies, precious metals and the dollar and what all of this is telling us. Dick has the data too on wage and labour force trends. This episode will also look at the global backdrop with the latest on China and Russia. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this break. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome to episode 20. That takes us into five months or so of podcasts and anybody who wants to go back and binge listen uh, we say go up there and look for us on apple and all the good platforms and look for odian capital conversations there's a lot of rich material pardon the pun we'll talk lots in this episode about many things lots to unpack as they might say in our main segment coming up later dick Beauvais will take us through the extraordinary pressure on the Fed to control prices, and that's in everyone's sights, especially the Fed and even the American consumer. Speaking of prices, I just noticed uh, overnight, I think uh, the average price of gas hit something close to $5 per gallon, actually 4.92 according to the American Automobile Association. That's a five cents jump overnight. It's, It's horrible. Uh, but we're going to look at inflation later and um, we'll also get to the U.S. Federal Reserve and Dick's analysis on this episode. Uh, Dick, you've been doing some work on China and Russia and some interesting findings have emerged. Do you want to share those with us first? Well, what interests me at the moment is that, uh, you know, obviously inflation and the Fed's actions are going to be very important uh, in, in, I'm going to say, the near term. But longer term, I think that uh, what we're dealing with is this bifurcation of the world economy. Uh, and I think that uh, what's happening in China and Russia will be more important to uh, the stock markets and the economy and interest rates and the Fed in the United States than any other event that's occurring at the moment. Uh, if we look at Russia, uh, I think that what we've seen to this point is probably a lot of misinformation concerning the, the weakness of the Russian army, the weakness of Russia, et cetera. 
because Russia has, in fact, achieved its primary goals in this uh, invasion of the Ukraine. It did open up a land bridge to the Crimea. Uh, it did uh, increase its control and hold on uh, Donbass and, and Luhansk. Uh, and it is expanding out of that base into more areas in, into Ukraine. Now, obviously, it did not achieve a lot of the, if you will, vainglorious goals of taking Kiev and, you know, taking the whole country. But, you know, to, to say that, you know, the, that Putin needs to go back to the Russian people and say that he's been defeated is, would be incorrect. He succeeded. And what is even more fascinating, and, and I think more dangerous, is that uh, the ruble, which cratered, you know, when this war began, the ruble is now quite strong. Uh, and in fact, it's it's come back uh, almost to where it was before the, w this war began. In addition to which, the thing that bothers me most about it is that uh, the ruble is now being used for transactions. In other words, if you want to buy Russian nickel and, and uh, gas and, and oil, uh, not just China, but other, but other countries, they're paying in the ruble. Uh, so the, the, the ruble is resulting in a pretty big increase in cash flows to Russia. Uh, so again, uh, I hope that Russia <laughs> is, is beaten into the ground, but I don't think it's going to happen. And I think that we need to get a more realistic view of what's going on there because uh, Russia is not, is not losing uh, if one takes a look at who, who got the most territory, who is the most devastated, whose economy has been hurt the most, you know, who is getting certain side benefits. You know, it's not the Ukraine, it's uh, Russia. Yeah, I mean, I think on the Ukraine-Russia thing, I, I think it's really more, you, you're, frame, you're, you're framing it from a, from a tabula russa, just a you know, blank slate. And Russia's now got more territory than they did in January of this year, and therefore they're winning. I think what's interesting is the pregame spill was, or the, the spill that was out there was that, you know, Kiev will fall in two days. And because Kiev didn't fall, therefore Russia's losing. And so the narrative has all been set up that even if they only take all of Ukraine, but not Kiev, somehow Ukraine's won. Yeah. And I agree with you that, that it's, it's a little bit more of a mind bend to realize Ukraine's losing territory. They're losing people. They really don't have an economy to speak of because how can you have an economy when you can't control your ports, you can't control your railroads, you can't control your roadways, you can't control your borders. And a lot of people, you know, where do you get a, where do you get your paycheck? Where do you get your food? How do you shop? I mean, you're basically back to a, a pre-industrial economy during, during war. So I agree with you completely that on the ground, Russia is winning. But it seems to me the American strategy, or at least my perception of the American strategy is, is to make it very costly for Putin and to make this war drag out as long as possible rather than decisive victory on either side. You know, you said that from the beginning and you've been correct, uh, you know, because that's what appears to be happening here. Uh, it, it doesn't seem that the uh, NATO allies want to create a crushing blow and drive Russia out of Ukraine and, and, and walk away with a win because they can't win uh, in the sense that uh, Putin now has got his survivability as a leader of, of Russia, uh, you know, tied to the fact that he cannot lose in Ukraine. He cannot get kicked out. Th this thing is going to go on for a long, long time, which you predicted. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's moving in that direction. So I think Again, that for me, the most important factor is that we now do have these three 
if you will, complexes. We've got Western Europe and the United States. We've got Russia, uh, China, and I would argue uh, places like India, uh, you know, obviously North Korea, Iran, uh, maybe Ecuador, maybe Kenya, maybe, you know, places all around the world that might be uh, more attuned to to the Russian side here. And then we've got uh, the massive number of countries uh, that don't give a damn one way or the other, which would be all of South America, pretty much, and most of Africa. But as a result of, of creating that world, countries have got to operate their, their economies differently than what we used to be called the peace dividend in 1990. Uh, the peace dividend is gone. We now have to consider the costs of, of uh, doing things internally that we didn't want to do previously. And, and I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be uh, a, a real problem. But once, as I say, this recession gets over with, I think it's going to, uh, the United States has an opportunity to benefit enormously uh, by the resurrection of the manufacturing economy in this country, which hasn't happened, I admit, but which I'm absolutely convinced will happen. You've spoken about that frequently and often, and we should look at that even on later on this episode or at some future point. Um, I would not underestimate the fighting spirit of the Ukrainians. We saw how they stood up to the Russian forces in Kiev. And to Matt's point, I, I had the honor, I got to call it an honor and, and the privilege to speak to a, a Ukraine-based business in the past couple of weeks. And um, they're scattered, obviously, because of what's happened. They were based out of, out of Kiev. They're a web development company. I'm going to mention their name, Green Ice. And um, the whole thing exacted a horrible toll on the staff, but they moved some of the staff moved to Poland, uh, and I, I and I spoke to one of the founders in Poland and another founder in Kiev. And what he told me, I found extraordinary. He said Kiev was now back to the new normal. There was traffic jams. The banks were working. ATM machines were working. People were walking on the street. People. I, I understand we're going out at night. The grocery sh shelves were full. The only thing they were missing was a shortage of salt. I mean, to me, there is a sense of cognitive dissonance in my own mind that, wow, they recovered this quickly in Kiev, which is not to say this won't be a long drawn out war, but it's an important thing to, to mention here. You know, it is important and, and, and it is an indicator that it will be a long drawn out war because if, uh, if Ukraine is believes that it's winning convincingly and if uh, normalcy is returning to areas of the country, uh, they're going to keep fighting. And if they keep fighting uh, and the Russians can't stop fighting, uh, and I, I would say that this thing is, you know, and, and, and as I say, Matt did predict this, uh, this thing is going to move uh, out for years. It's not uh, It's not a 100-day war or a 30-day war. It's a multi-year war. Uh, we're going to be talking about this thing, you know, two, three years from now. I agree. I, I think we. I think this is going to be a multi-year war. And I think the the real problem I have with it philosophically, and I think investors should have with it, is no one is even contemplating an end game here. You know, you see Biden on TV being like, "What's the strategy?" And the strategy is to defeat Putin. Well, what does that mean? Like, does that mean going back? Because you know, we have to we have to remember a lot of people woke up in February and like, "Holy crap, Russia's invading Ukraine!" But the reality is, they invaded Ukraine. Eight years ago, 2014, they invaded Georgia in 2008. This is not a new war. A fun quiz I, I love to give people is, you know, tell me when did World War II start? Let's just discuss what day did World War II start? 
and you know you can you can get 10 or 15 different dates out of people you know is it, it was at the date of the um, the munich conference where um chamberlain gave up czechoslovakia's uh sudetenland was it the date they invaded Poland? Was it D-Day? Was it the day Pearl Harbor was attacked? Was it the day China was invaded? I mean, what day did World War II start? And if you call this World War III or if this continues on, the question is, when did it start? And you can make an argument. It started in 2008 when he invaded Georgia or it started in 2014. But as of now, it seems like all the fighting is in the regions that have been fighting for the last eight years. And then yesterday you wake up and Kiev was bombed again. So it's really hard to tell what the strategy is who's fighting who what the end game is what the goals are what victory looks like because no one is defining it the thing that is uh, interesting to me though on the other side is that china looks to me like it's a lot weaker than uh than initially thought it it, it appears that the chinese economy is now uh, facing some tremendous problems the first one would be china made this bet on real estate and what I'm reading is that at, what, at one point, real estate was 25% of the economy uh, internally. Basically, that bet didn't pay out. Uh, people cannot afford these buildings that were put up. There's massive amounts of debt that uh, you know is, is sitting there that uh, China is, itself is going to have to back because China owns the banks. The banks are going to own the debt. So if, if Evergrande doesn't pay, the banks are going to have to deal with it. Well, you know, people think that, uh, and, and there's so much been written about the fact that the Chinese economy by the end of this decade is going to surpass the U.S. economy in size. And, and I'm having trouble believing that, uh, not, not just because they have this massive real estate slash debt problem, nor because they have this demographic problem, which is, is more compelling, but also because the actions that they've taken, uh, because they are a dictatorship, they are—they're not a communist country any longer, but they—they they are, uh, you know, a, a very strong, uh, you know, autocracy, and they're using their powers now to attack the companies, Chinese companies that operate within their borders. In other words, because the Communist Party does not want to have a power group within China, which could uh, be strong enough to uh, question the, the actions of the Communist Party, you know, the Communist Party has come down hard upon them. Um, and I think that foreign investment, therefore, into China, which had been enormous since uh, Nixon opened the doors, has fallen back. Uh, I, I know that Matt has a number of specific examples which he can point to, uh, and, and I think you know we, we should listen to them in a second. But the last point I want to make is that if foreign investment capital stops coming into that country, which is what I think we're looking at, then um, China's got a problem. He's got a lot of problems, and I don't see it surpassing the U.S. In the, at the end of this decade at all. If if you go back to even pre-Trump. Um, sanctions or tariffs that he put onto China, you know, the, 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 the world was starting to decouple as it was. And then Trump goes in and starts pointing out the deficiencies with being dependent on China with the chips and with Huawei. And then you get COVID, which just amplified the problem that the entire world, or at least a lot of the um, production capacity of the entire world is located in China, which is not a dependable ally it's a long ways from almost anyone it requires a lot of transportation to get goods out and companies are now realizing that um that they need to at least re-offshore 
or onshore their manufacturing capacity. I saw this morning that Apple's moving all their iPad production to Vietnam. Um, you know, there's talks that they're going to be moving some iPhone production to to maybe a NAFTA country. And, you know, you, you look at these different decisions by just independent thinkers, all just looking at the same, I guess, game of risk and deciding where do we want to put our manufacturing. And China is no longer the obvious answer. In fact, there's obvious reasons to not do China. And nothing that has happened since Trump got elected has done anything to reverse that trend. The war in Ukraine is is now exacerbating it. Obviously, COVID did. And the continuing um, rumblings between China's government and America's government is also exacerbating it. So it seems like this is a one-way train, which is decoupling from China. And, and just to layer on one more issue, which I think is an important one, China has loaned this money that we speak about often to 150, 160 countries, $6 trillion. And, you know, roughly 40% of that money uh, can't be paid back. These countries will never have the ability to pay it back. And China basically, in, in lending the money, demanded that their workers build the highway or the bridge or the building or, or the dam or whatever it is that was being created. Uh, and that if the country was not able to pay back, uh, China has an opportunity to get free natural resources in, in lieu of uh, getting cash payments. Uh, so that China has become very clearly a colonial power in all of these countries. And what we know about colonial powers, obviously, is that they get uh, thrown out. I mean, supposedly in Kenya, uh, they actually beat workers uh, physically if they don't uh, work uh, up at the, the, the level that the Chinese overlords want them to. So, so the net effect is I, everywhere you look, at China at the moment, I, I see problems. So I, I am, again, I am not a believer that uh, the United States will, will fall into second position against China because their system of government, their system uh, of dealing with companies, their demographics, uh, their, their debt problem, their miss, uh, if you will, allocation of funds into real estate, uh, all seem to argue that this, this country is going to have a lot of trouble before it gets back to the pace of 5, 6, 10% growth that uh, they, they claimed that they used to have. Um, so I, I don't know. To me, again, the opportunity for the United States to take a big chunk of the manufacturing businesses there, if we invest in the technology to lower the cost of labor input in building these products, I think the opportunities for the United States are just phenomenal. And I wish we'd, we'd get this recession, get it over with and start moving in the right direction. Just a few things to pick you up on there, Dick. I, I'm not sure in which order, but one, you say China's no longer a communist country. I mean, maybe it's a matter of how you define your terms. It's a totalitarian nation, a kind of a globalist now in a sense. But the other interesting part of what you said there was China won't be this rising superpower much longer. So where does that leave the equation on the US as the reserve currency? Because you've spoken about that here pretty persuasively. So does it mean that we will remain the reserve currency for a, a wee bit longer? Or how does it change that equation? And then onto the idea of China not being a communist nation. I mean, it's kind of a dastardly nation, especially of what you were describing there in Kenya. That's horrible. Well, communism is not a political system. It's an economic system. 
right? In other words, when Karl Marx wrote the uh, Das Kapital, and when Lenin, uh, you know, wrote his, uh, you know, pieces, which were much smaller in nature, uh, it was not envisioned that it would be an autocracy. It was envisioned that the people would run the, the political system as they would run the economy. So communism is not a political doctrine. It's an economic doctrine. It doesn't work, and that we've, we, we've learned that. And that's why China and Russia are no longer communist countries. They have, you know, very, very active capitalist systems within, they have stock markets, they have, you know, uh, capital raises, they have people who own shares in, in these countries. That doesn't exist in, under communism. It is an autocracy, a dictatorship, and that's a different, uh, it's a different uh, situation. However, um, the the system is now in place where you know the use of the yuan is being used uh, you know in multiple countries uh, and you know if this debt situation that, that I mentioned a moment ago becomes more extreme it, it's it's highly likely that China will do what Russia is now doing Russia is saying you want my oil you got to pay for it in rubles who would have ever thought that they could get away with that, but they're getting away with it, all right? If the, the, the Chinese can easily say, you, you owe us, you know, $6 trillion, uh, and we want to be paid back in one, not dollars. So, I mean, basically, um, I don't see, you know, the, the U.S. holding on to the reserve currency in, in the fashion that it now has, because it's forced, it's forced other countries to stop using the dollar. Why? It sanctioned them and told them they can't use it. So, so the net effect is um, the dollar will be a dominant world currency for the next 25, 30, who knows how many years. Will it have the same dominance that it had over the last 25 years? I, I sincerely doubt it. To pick up on that, I think, I think there's a few things when, when, you, when you're comparing currencies, which is a currency generally represents the value of what's backing it. And the United States backs its currency by basically saying free trade, you can settle in the United States, you can pay your debts here, you can do business with us, our navies will protect your shipping lanes. You know, we're, our fiat currency is basically a show of force. And what the ruble has proved is that a, a currency, which is basically backed by oil, is also a valuable currency. When you have an actual commodity backing your currency, you, you add value to your currency and you add stability to your currency. And so basically, I think what's happened with the ruble, and I think what you're saying is going to happen with the yuan, is that as long as something is backing it, it will have value. In yeah. terms of the U.S. dollar no longer being the reserve currency, I think that that trend is more driven by the idea that central banks have to balance, have to have some assets on their balance sheet to create trade, to create stability, to create economic value, to utilize, stabilize their currency. And when the U.S. dollar, which is basically, let's, let's be honest, you're not talking about U.S. dollars, you're talking about U.S. treasuries. And U.S. treasuries right now are a negative yielding asset in almost every regime that has inflation. Going and buying a U.S. Treasury that yields three percent is not a stable asset, and I think that's going to be a bigger driver of the decline of of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency is because it's it's a declining asset to the balance sheet of the banks that previously would have bought it. Well, I'm, I'm glad that uh, John brought up that issue uh, at the moment because uh, I was running some numbers this morning to figure out what commodity inflation was doing, and and I was shocked by seeing something that I I hadn't even considered. And that is um, 
every fiat currency in of major stature in the world pretty much has declined in value uh you know over the last uh, 12 months um every cryptocurrency has has fallen apart over the last 12 months the price of gold silver and platinum are down in the last 12 months so everything that you would think of as representing, you know, a, a store of value, a currency, a transaction, uh, something to handle transactions with have, have gone down except for the dollar. Uh, and, and I'm just wondering, my God, yeah. what will happen if the dollar starts to slip here? Because, uh, you know, th th there there's the whole world economy is still riding on the dollar more so than than one would have what certainly more so than i would have thought you know uh you know a year ago or six months ago or, or even last month uh, the dollar is strong and everything else that is purportedly a currency is weak and and uh i don't know how that one's going to play out but it's it's really something i'm going to keep my eye on because if the dollar starts slipping then you know gold and silver really do need to be bought I agree with you that it's kind of a conundrum that the dollar is appreciating while precious metals are not. Um, but the one thing you didn't mention was gold or oil. And I think oil, which is, you know, obviously the, the one thing that everyone on the planet needs to have an economy, I think in your chart that you sent out, it's up 140%. So not everything is down. No, no, the commodities, you know, a number of commodities are up. What, 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 what I was kind of limiting my thoughts to things that could be used as currency. Now, oil can definitely be used as currency. Yeah, but the point is, I don't care if it's the, the ruble. I mean, you, you, you mentioned the yen. I think in the very first uh, one of these podcasts that we did, you know, in, intimating that it was going to fall apart. I mean, the yen is is is, is been destroyed. Bitcoin is down. Everything other than Bitcoin in the crypto area is down multiples of the decline in Bitcoin. And, and I can't believe it. Gold and silver are down. Yeah. There's a dynamic going on, which maybe this war, you know, created where the dollar has is increased its primacy rather than what I keep saying that over time it's going to decrease its primacy. It's increased it. It's increased it meaningfully. And that uh, that's that's going to be, I mean, the United States has opportunity to take advantage of that given our debt. Uh, to use it to, to, to pay down some of the debt. Well, we're going to look at the Federal Reserve and some of these price rises and commodities and where they're valued at in the main segment coming up. I want to just quickly go back to you had suggested in an earlier episode that foreign money coming into the United States was propping up the dollar in part could that be at play here for its strength, or is there something else going on? No, no, no. It's 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 it is the main issue, right? If cryptocurrencies fell apart, if the price of gold and silver, you know, went down, that's fine. It has nothing to do with the movement of funds. But if every fiat currency of major stature is declining in value, that means that the dollar that money is moving into dollars. That means that the Treasury does not have to take is is strident a position in in getting new money in. Uh, you know, it, it's it's very positive for the United States. It, it is happening. It's extraordinarily positive. The other thing that's positive, of course, for the United States Treasury, not the dollar, for the United States Treasury, is inflation. Uh, you know, I've been watching the uh, uh, revenues of the United States government. Um, 
Now, April is not the right month to, to point to, but since it's the only, it's the last month I have data on, uh, the United States government ran a profit in April. It, its revenues exceeded its costs. Uh, and I, I'm waiting, so to speak, with bated breath to see what the main numbers are going to show. I, I doubt that there'll be anywhere near a positive profit, but I, I'm convinced that this uh, this inflation is doing uh, what it's supposed to do in that respect, and that it uh, it is swinging the revenues in favor of the U.S. government, which is taking a lot of pressure off this debt. So, so we'll, we'll see what the main numbers are, hopefully in a day or two. But uh, it, it the, the impact of inflation on the revenues of the U.S. government has been pronounced. It's been positive, and it is taking also the money coming in from overseas. It's it's very positive for the U.S. Treasury. So there's some upside in a weird way to inflation. Um, if I could go back and pick up on another point you've raised repeatedly, Dick, and um, an explanation would be very interesting, is um, manufacturing moving back to the United States. That's a wonderful thing for America. I would think people would agree with that. All manufacturing may not be all moving back to the United States as, as manufacturers start moving operations out of China. Um What's your take on how that will impact labor costs and the overall price of goods in America? I mean, is not the whole rationale for outsourcing to begin with to keep the cost of goods and production down? Any, any thoughts about that? Will our standard of living remain the same, go up or go down? That is the critical issue of manufacturing coming back. Um, if manufacturing is going to come back, it's only because the cost of manufactured goods, well, certain goods for defense reasons are going to come back no matter what. But um, the cost of um, purchasing the goods being produced in the United States is the critical factor. Uh, in order to um, get the cost of these goods down, there's got to be a massive amount of research and development. Uh, there's got to be a huge amount of expenditures on robotics. There's got to be a, a you know continued uh, evolution of this change in um, how we produce goods. And if we reach that point, you know, whereby we are selling products which are globally competitive uh, on a price and function basis, then manufacturing will recover on the basis that, that I am I'm arguing. Now, going back 300 years, Everyone has argued that if you increase technology to lower the labor costs in uh, manufacturing, that basically people will be without jobs, uh, the economy will suffer, and it, you, you'll have created a, a massive problem. We're not seeing that. We, we have never seen that happen, right? In other words, that was one of Marx's core theories, right? You know, and it didn't happen. You know, what happened is we created more jobs, more opportunity, more wealth. Everyone benefited from it. And if we take the past 12 months in the United States, manufacturing jobs are up and they're up, uh, you know, almost as rapidly as jobs are up overall on a percentage basis. Not There's still a very small number of manufacturing jobs in this country. So, no, I, I don't believe that, you know, by increasing our, our manufacturing capability by selling more products, at, you know, again, at, at comparable price, that we're going to see everybody lose their job uh, to technology and everybody's going to be looking for, you know, some dole handout. I, I don't see that happening at all because it's never happened. Technology wipe out jobs. It just hasn't ever happened. And we got 300 years of experience to argue that it won't happen now. 
I think so, you have more like 5,000 years of experience. Right, right. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. We're going back to the dinosaurs here, Matt. <laughs> um, but I guess what I'm saying, Dick, are asking you directly, net-net, uh, it'll be great for the American economy. It'll be great for our standard of living. There might be a little transition, but manufacturing and IT and all of that's coming back to America. And as uh, a former president used to say, make America great again, I guess. Yeah, no, but I, 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 I believe strongly that capitalists use technology in a very positive fashion to generate, you know, higher returns, and that in the way that they've done it historically, we have not wiped out, you know, the income of American workers, we have not wiped out job opportunities for American workers, and I don't see it happening going forward. I mean, when you say that, and I, I agree philosophically, the reality is, is there are individuals who get hurt every time you know, a new robot shows up to, to restock the shelves. But I think demographically speaking, every new invention that frees up human labor to do other more productive things has increased in greater wealth, greater prosperity, and greater happiness and, and greater joy for collective society as a whole, even though certain individuals like bub buggy whip salesmen in the 1910s, you know, they get hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Gary, Indiana is not the, the, the most, uh, you know, rapidly growing uh, area of the United States economy, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, it, I kind of think that that city uh, almost should be used as the litmus test of whether we are in fact succeeding in this recovery or return to manufacturing, because it was the heart of, uh, you know, manufacturing strength of the United States. And now, well, I, have, I haven't been there for years, so I, I, I don't <laughs> want to say what it looks like now. But the last time I drove through there, it, it was a hulk, you know, it was, yeah. it was not very strong. I wouldn't conflate one particular city or one particular region with the overall country, because the reality is, as leaders in certain cities, you know, Detroit, and I'm sure Gary might have its own problems, but like Detroit, they drove the auto manufacturers out of the city. They, they increased taxes, they decreased services. And, you know, the, the days of the auto manufacturing opening up a new plant in Michigan are long gone because the place to open up an auto plant is in the South. It's in Texas, it's in Alabama, it's in Mississippi, where you have friendly governments that want to attract manufacturers and want to attract jobs. And so Gary might not this, I'm not saying you're wrong on Gary, but their local leadership might cause have uh, have a co greater cause and effect than the overall trend that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, no, obviously that's a, that's a critical factor. In other words, if uh, you you get a population that says, "Gee, all these companies are making all this money, yeah, we're not taxing them enough, they're not contributing to the community enough." And therefore, um, yeah, well, we'll do what what they just did in Florida, right? We're trying to penalize Disney. In Florida, I mean, it, 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 it's it's one of the most inane things, you know, I think you could do because of a political issue. They now want, they've now taken, you know, Disney's right to control its immediate area away from Disney and given it to the two local counties. And in both of those counties don't have the money to do what Disney was doing in improving those counties and in the life of people within the county. Yeah, so politicians... Politicians can destroy uh, what you know manufacturers may create. Uh, I mean, who would have thought that the state of Florida would attack Disney, given what Disney has done for Florida? When, when before Disney, uh, I forget it's Disney World, not Disneyland. Before Disney World, you know, there was that was a cattle that was cattle raising country. There were orange trees there and cattle there. 
and people may say, well, gee, that's a bucolic way of life. I think it was wonderful. But if you go through Orlando now, it is just phenomenally alive. It filled and millions of people come there every year and Florida benefits. And, and yet the, the state of Florida wants to, the state of Florida has attacked the country, company. I, I don't get it. That's interesting to hear you say that, Dick. It's a very divided issue, but wasn't it the case that Disney itself interfered in the political process and lobbied on an issue where the people and its lawmakers were deciding something for the society as a whole? And then there was that pushback from the governor and the lawmakers. Disney has every right, as every an individual does, to uh, have to try and have a say in the political system, right? In other words, uh, I don't believe that simply because uh, you're a corporate citizen, you have no right to say what you want to say, and you have to lay down and take whatever the government wants to throw at you. So the fact that Disney wants freedom of speech, you know, uh, in its properties is not is not to me a reason to attack the company. Well, I think they were taken it a step further than that. I mean, because they were voting on social legislation on what the people of Florida wanted, not what Disney wanted. And it had its own particular this, slant on that. This, Disney doesn't have a vote. I mean, it, it's the people of Florida have votes. You know, Disney can say, this is what I think, but it does, Disney does not have 200,000 votes or a million votes. It's, it, it can say what it believes. It has the right to say what it wants to say. And that's all it did. And I mean, I, I, I think we can move on from the Disney argument because the reality is, is all these companies, every company operates in a political sphere and you have to be careful where you, you know, you have to represent your constituency and, and whether or not Disney has the right or Florida has the right or whatever the reality is, is this, this is the playground you're playing in. And I think what the companies have learned from the Disney retaliation, which I agree with Dick, I, I don't agree that it's appropriate for government to retaliate against people's political views or companies' political views. But the reality is, is that that could happen. And, you know, you see, um, you know, the, when the Supreme Court case of Roe v. Wade, the supposed decision was leaked, I kind of expected a lot of companies to come out and make a stand. And I think what happened to Disney is kind of, kind of made companies and people scared to stand for what they believe in if they if they do in fact have opinions because they are worried about retaliation and i don't think that's good for society that that government retaliation is a consideration that companies should be taking into account that said i was talking about gary indiana and and detroit and i think what the reality was those aren't those aren't retaliation of moves companies aren't leaving detroit because out of retaliation like you, you did x i'm going to do y the same way that it appears disney was retaliated against it was more of just a gradual decline you know in 1970 you have a police force and i'm just making up numbers but maybe you have a thousand people on the police force and and you have a low tax base and by the 1990s you have 400 people in your police force and a high tax. And it, it slowly makes sense to move your manufacturing elsewhere. And I think that is more of the, you know, of the fear of what can happen to it, to a community that gets bogged down by an oppressive government is just the slow decline where you really don't even notice. It's more like the, the frog in the pot and, and how you can put a frog into, you know, cool water and put it on the heat and then you turn it up. And by the time the frog realizes the water is boiling, its muscles have been, um, de they can't use any, they can't use their muscles anymore because, because it's too warm to jump out. And so they, you don't have to put a lid on the top of a pot of, of water. And, and with Disney and Florida, I mean, that's an obvious, you know, retaliation and backlash, but the, the more substantial risk to a community is the gradual, um, creeping up. 
of just an economy that doesn't work for a company anymore. So you're saying, uh, Matt, uh, oppressive government, high taxes push a lot of these companies out. We've seen some of that in New York, right? I think New York, I mean, New York is, you got to wonder what these people are thinking. I mean, you know, the, the, I I believe it was just last week that the census put out their numbers on the annual wages of people who have moved since the pandemic. And New York has lost something like $25 billion of W-2 income of people who have moved to other states. And that $25 billion is a lot. It gets taxed. And that move is permanent. And so, you know, over over a decade, that's $250 billion of GDP that New York has lost because of their policies. That type of stuff is 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 crazy to me. And then New York and Democrats come out and start, and I'm not trying to get political, but you know, Democrats brag about how they're increasing the vote share in New York. Well, it's not because people are buying into their policies so much as the people who used to vote against them are moving out. That's not a that's not a healthy sign of a of a balanced economy. The situation with Amazon is a, is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Um, Amazon wants to build this huge complex in Queens. It gets certain benefits to do so. The local politicians, you know, throw a fit saying that, uh, you know, we're giving away this, that, the other thing. And therefore, Amazon decides not to open up in Queens. And then, you know, last, I think it was two weeks ago, I was talking to a bank in Cincinnati, and uh, they're so happy that Amazon has chosen the, the, the Cincinnati metropolitan area to uh, build its, uh, I, I forget, it's, it's, it's air, they, they put a huge facility there for air movement of goods over the air and in, in the air. And, and essentially, um, Kentucky is benefiting, Cincinnati is benefiting, Lower Ohio is benefiting, and New York is not benefiting because the politicians, you know, decided that they didn't want to, to, to allow Amazon to go there. Just, just insane. It's insane. You know, people do things. I mean, even here in Florida, I mean, Amazon builds these warehouses. Why would you build in Florida? Florida is on the tip end of the nation. You, the transportation costs anywhere in the United States out of Florida are ridiculous, which is why you don't have manufacturing here. And yet Amazon is one of the um, fastest growing employers in the state. If I could quickly go back to another thing you raised earlier, Dick, um, if you could just maybe lay it out. Uh, You mentioned there about the resurgence, the coming back, if you will, of manufacturing to the United States and robotics technology. We should not fear a lot of long-term dislocation. It's going to be a net net plus for the American economy. I remember asking you, and your, your answer was really interesting, that employment today in the banking sector is at an all-time high and yet we see so much technology at the banks and so much digital technology and the branches closing although branches are not going away and you explain that to be a phenomena of the it sector there's a lot of technology jobs now being created in the banks i mean i guess that's to your point yeah well i'm glad you raised that point because that's exactly that's exactly uh your I, your thought here is exactly correct. In other words, if you take a look at any bank in the United States, you find that uh, labor-intensive activities, uh, like operating out of a branch, is where they're constantly laying off people and reducing people. They're spending hundreds of billions of dollars as an industry in advanced technology, and all of the jobs in banking are in technology. 
that's where we're seeing the surge in, in hiring in the banking industry. It's in technology, where we're seeing the, the loss of jobs is where the, the process is labor intensive. So uh, it's a perfect example of the fact that bringing high tech in is not job eating, it's job creating, and it's beneficial. It's beneficial to the banks that do it. It's beneficial to the employees, and it's beneficial certainly to the customers that are getting better products at lower prices. What do you think the greatest risk is to this, to your call, that that manufacturing and reshoring and, and, and it's going to work out positively for the United States? What do you think the greatest threat to that prediction is? Well, I think, you know, what you said is the greatest risk. I mean, I think, you know, in order for this thing to work, you know, there has to be the ability to create products at, you know, globally uh, competitive prices. If you can't do that, the manufacturers are not going to be able to function in this country. In order to do that, there has to be cooperation with government. Government has to provide, you know, certain tax benefits, or, you know, whether it's on depreciation or whether it's, uh, you know, research and development or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, benefits for simply building a plant in a given area. And if government refuses to do that, similar to what happened in Queens, New York, um, you know, where I grew up, you know, basically, if government refuses to do that, then, you know, manufacturing is not going to be able to uh, generate the low cost products necessary to be competitive globally. It's not, it's not that they have to be competitive inside the United States, because, you know, my wife is always going to shop at Walmart, at Walmart, and she's going to shop there, because the price of goods at Walmart are attractive. So if U.S. manufacturing, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to succeed, it's got to succeed at Walmart. It's, you've got to be able to sell products at low prices. To do that, you need real cooperation between the government and the, and the companies that come into the area that you operate in. You've got to get those companies in there. You've got to get those companies happy with what is happening in that area, which is something that Florida actually does do. Uh, and, and you've got it. You, you, you will therefore get an increase in employment, increase in, in revenues to the area, increase in services. Uh, services to the area, everything benefits, but there has to be cooperation. And if there's no cooperation, it, you know, what I'm hoping and praying will happen, won't happen. And that's, and that would be terrible shame. I mean, I think from my perspective, I think the biggest threat that I see with this, and, and you, I think you kind of touched on it is it's government involvement. Government has to be aware of where the needs of the the country are. And to me, the biggest threat is that we don't have a labor force that could convert to becoming a tech force. And to the extent that we do, it's going to be a high supply demand imbalance. And so I, I feel like we need to, I, I would wish that we had political leaders that thought about our visa and immigration policy to let educated folks in and to educate people in the skills that they need and and have different prices. If someone wants to study the humanities, they should pay a different tuition rate than someone who wants to you know, get into IT because the person that wants to study humanities, to me, that's kind of a vanity degree because it's not going to necessarily help the country move in the direction that it needs to to become the manufacturing powerhouse that I agree with you we could be and should be. This Toyota situation, you know, blows my mind, right? I mean, essentially, um, 50, 60 years ago, uh, there was a genius in the United States on, you know, increasing the efficiency in manufacturing. Uh, and, and, you know, basically, the U.S. 
auto companies would not use his, I think his name was Harrison, I forget his name. Uh, they would not use his services. So he went to Japan and the Japanese loved him because all their cars were falling apart and, and they needed someone to show how to manufacture cars better. So now fast forward to the present, the Japanese come to the United States and they build their cars in the United States using the techniques that they developed in Japan. And those cars are rated better than U.S. cars built in the United States. And I can't figure it. How can you take the same workers building the same product in the same country? And if it's built by Honda or Toyota, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a wonderful automobile. If it's built by General Motors or Ford, it's, it's, it's something that breaks down all the time. You know, every, every year when Consumer Reports comes out with its uh, new automobile issue, you know, I look forward to getting it, uh, you know, to see, you know, if the Americans are moving up and they're not. I mean, basically, you know, Consumer Reports continues to rank all these foreign cars built in the United States by foreign manufacturers higher than American cars built in the United States by American workers. The situation is far more complex than, than what that simplistically I mentioned it a, a second ago, which is you need cooperation between the government and, and business. You need that, but you need more than that. You need to figure out what are the manufacturing systems that are so good elsewhere that we will always buy foreign products and think the foreign products are superior to American products because we don't want to buy things made in the United States because we don't think they're of the quality of the foreign product. How can that happen? It used to be just the opposite. I mean, I don't understand how it can happen. So th there's a lot that has to change to make manufacturing a powerhouse that I think it will become, and, and hopefully it, it will be done. So Matt, to your point on Dix, you're saying we should have immigration policies that pr permit um, highly educated workers to come in here and give our no, common... No, 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 no. I'm talking about American workers who are already here. And no, I'm, I was yeah. just talking to Matt's earlier point and then to yours, Dick. My was, point is you're using the same workers, American-born, American-educated, American-trained, you're using the same workers. You put them in a Toyota plant, they build a superior car that the American public likes, rates highly, right? You put them in a General Motors plant, they build a car that Americans say will break down, that's going to be repaired repeatedly. It's the same worker. You are perfectly correct. I, I would be in total agreement with you. And it's a fascinating why why the disparity. I guess a lot of things go to play on that management protocol, technology, design, whatever. But I was also on to, to Matt's point. I don't want to be very clear. Matt, are you saying that our immigration policies for permitting highly educated workers into the country should be adjusted? I, that was my point. Yeah, I, I think nothing is by accident. I mean, you the, the reality is, is you have government leaders who should be focused on creating the environment for business to prosper and succeed. And for businesses to prosper and succeed in reshoring manufacturing, you have to have the total gamut. You have to have low-wage workers that can that can do the tinkering on the line and, and run, run the machines and maybe can be trained to run higher tech machines. But you also need the IT guys that can design the robots and design the processes and plants. And you need supply chain managers that have the education to you know, minimize and, and not accidentally put a plant of deep importance, as Dick said, in, in South Florida, because 
you know, what Amazon's doing in Cincinnati seems a lot more logical because it's probably an hour and a half flight to 80% of the population. Like you need, you need people with brains. And if you're not going to educate your population, then you need to allow it to come in through immigration. And to Dick's point, when he asks these rhetorical questions of how is it possible that this can happen, that American cars get manufactured at a lower quality rate than brand new Japanese plants that come in. I mean, I think there's long, there's lots of Harvard business case studies on things like this where complacency and redundancy and bureaucracy and people just get caught sitting on their, sitting on their butts basically because GM at one point, you know, as goes America, as goes GM and goes the American worker type thing, like the phrase that GM represented America used to be a fact. It used to be true. And GM, if you became the CEO of GM, you've now reached at one point in time, you reached the pinnacle of what could be considered a great career and you get complacent and you stop innovating and you stop thinking about the future. And lo and behold, someone could open up a plant in a region of the country that you thought was basically close to you and produce high quality cars because they have better systems, better management, better education, better ways of training. It's to me, this is all about the um, economic life cycle and the economic tools that are there for companies to take advantage of complacent actors. But that said, when Dick's talking about the future, and I agree with him, the future should be great. It, it does re- require cooperation between businesses and the government to see where the needs of the businesses are going. And if those aren't going to be met through education, it can be met through immigration. But the reality is, is it's not going to happen on accident. It's going to happen because businesses have the foresight to talk to government and government has the foresight to respond to the business's needs. You know, you, you see people like um, it was the CEO of Microsoft talking about how he had to open up uh, an office in Vancouver so that he could import labor from, from overseas PhD students because he couldn't get them visas to work in the United States. So he's bringing immigrants to come work for Microsoft in Canada. He's getting them to the West, but he's not getting to the United States because our immigration policies don't let him. And he says he would rather hire Americans from American universities. And these, lots of times the people he's, I call it importing, but they're immigrants to Canada, are not educated overseas. They've been educated in America and they can't stay and work here. And it's just, I'm just saying you need to have a balanced approach between government and business to make this happen. One way or the other, it's going to happen. But it has to, it would be a lot smoother if the government cooperated. No question about it. You're listening to Audien Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt van Alstein of Audien Capital Group. Dick is the chief financial strategist at Audien, and Matt is Audien co founder and managing partner on this main segment we're going to be looking at the federal reserve with a lot of new numbers and perspective from dick Beauvais. and dick has been compiling some price numbers indices uh the audience indexes uh, covering precious metals cryptocurrencies the dollar energy and food are killers in all of this energy prices are skyrocketing meat prices are skyrocketing grain industrial metals are up hugely and also sort of as backdrop to this dick has looked at some employee numbers and he concludes that the pressure is on the u.s federal reserve to act to control prices in america take us through it dick well basically uh, if they allow uh, inflation to continue uh, in other words and this gets back to whether Wall Street owns the Fed or Main Street owns the Fed. 
But uh, if they allow, you know, prices to continue to rise, you know, nothing positive will come of it in terms of uh, manufacturing capability, uh, defense capability, or uh, the ability of uh, the average American simply to get enough food uh, at, at the right price for his family. So the, the, the compelling need on the Fed is to break inflation. Uh, it must be broken. Uh, you can't, um, you know, food prices have gone up pretty dramatically. As, as you mentioned, uh, John, you know, we, we've had roughly a 31% increase in the price of meat uh, sold over the counter in the last year. Similarly, we've had a 31% increase in the price of grain-based bread, grain-based products, which are sold over the counter. Uh, you know, and, and the price of gasoline, I think it was said on television this morning that uh, in every state in the United States, a gallon of gasoline costs more than four bucks, and that that has never happened before in the history of the country. Of course, in California, we're looking at it closing in on six bucks. But the point is, you know, um, inflation will kill our ability to do anything. It will kill uh, all of the things that, I mean, Bank of America constantly says, you know, we've got more savings in, in deposit accounts today than there was there a year ago. No, we don't. Not if, if you're looking at 8% inflation, you know, you've got to reduce the amount of savings in that account by a, by 8% uh, in terms of its buying power. And therefore, it's not greater uh, than, you know, what, what, you know, Bank of America thinks it is. But, but anyway, the, the net effect is the Fed has articulated that it understands this risk. It has articulated that it is its main goal. The, the president has called Powell in to sit down and talk, the head of the, the, the Federal Reserve to sit down and talk and told him that it's your job, you've got to break inflation. And it is his job because, you know, we created this inflation by increasing the money supply by 26% year over year a couple of years ago. And, and now the Fed having created it has got to kill it. And the way it has to kill it is it's got to shrink its balance sheet. Now we've run into a serious problem. The Fed's balance sheet has got false values in it. In other words, the Fed has been on this program of buying, you know, treasuries and buying, you know, mortgage-backed securities at the rate of 120 billion a month, and they bought all these, uh, you know, securities in a period in which interest rates were at one point record low, but but certainly very close to record low. And the net effect is they don't mark those securities to market. They say we bought them at such and such a level. That's what they're worth, and we're not going to mark them to market. Now, take a look at the most vulnerable part of it. They've got $2.6 trillion sitting in mortgage-backed securities. 97.5% of those mortgage-backed securities have maturities which are 10 years or longer, which means that that whole portfolio is underwater. Everything in that portfolio is underwater. The Federal Reserve is not recognizing the fact that that portfolio is underwater. It's indicating that that portfolio is, you know, at, at par value. Now, the problem is they want to sell that portfolio. They're saying that as of, you know, this month, they're going to start on, on a small basis. But by, you know, September, they're going to kick up the amount uh, that they're going to sell in, uh, in that portfolio. Once they sell that portfolio, they've got to recognize a loss. And once they recognize a loss, 
they're going to show that maybe the Federal Reserve of the United States has no equity. So we have this tremendous need. It's an absolute demand upon the Federal Reserve that they move to, to, to eliminate this inflation. But on the other hand, they've done such a horrible job in the construction of their balance sheet that there could be problems in that balance sheet, which are going to slow down their ability to attack inflation. And that would be a critical shame. They've got to move forward no matter what their balance sheet looks like. They've got to move forward no matter what you know happens to common stock prices. They've got to get rid of inflation. If they don't, common stock prices will fall. They will ultimately have to recognize those losses. And the American public will find itself having a, a real problem in meeting its day-to-day needs uh, by buying gasoline, food, and, and renting a place to live. What do you think the solution is? I mean, I agree with you on all of your points. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, back in, um, I don't know, it was 2018, I heard a quote from Ben Bernanke where he said, uh, monetary, monetary policy is 98% talk, 2% action. And I kind of think about that when I hear... Um, Jay Powell talk about how he wants to be the next Paul Volcker. Is he just talking a big game and never actually going to do what he's saying? Like selling mortgage bonds below par when they're marked at par is going to be a huge eye-opening experience for a lot of people, especially if what they, you know, you, you're 2.6 trillion, I think is what you said is on the balance yeah, sheet. Yeah. So they're saying they're going to sell 15 billion, but does that mean they're, they'll, they're going to reveal the price of the other 2.6 trillion? I mean, you're not talking about just the losses on the parts they sell, but like it'll give a, a an eye-opening um, ability to price to market their entire portfolio. What do you think is going to happen? And what do you think should happen? The Federal Reserve puts out uh, an income statement every quarter, just the way any company or any bank does. And, you know, they're not going to be able to hide the fact. They can hide the fact now by not marking to market that portfolio, but they're not going to be able to hide the fact when they start selling that portfolio that they're taking losses on the sales because it's going to show up income statement. That's why I'm asking if you think they're actually going to follow through and sell or let's just talk. Well, see, that's that's the thing that has me most worried because what you said is, you know, something that Powell has followed. I mean, he has now done 98% talking and 2% no action, uh, similar to what Bernanke's, I guess, prescription was. And, you know, he's getting some very positive results in, in the sense that he has knocked stock prices down dramatically, uh, but but he hasn't hit where he has to hit, which is the actual price of the goods. So, um, I wish I could tell you I knew how to handle it. I don't. Uh, I do not know how to handle it. Uh, I see it as being a major problem. I see it as something which is going to slow them down in this in their fight against inflation. But I think no matter what the cost is and what the result is, since the Fed can print as much money as it wants to cover whatever losses that it may generate, I think he's got to go forward. I mean, I, I wonder if the prescription would be just to let the short-term treasuries and just ignore the mortgage balance, ignore the mortgage positions and just let the short-term treasuries roll off rather than focus on mortgage-backed securities. I didn't think of it, but you did and you're right. <laughs> you know, the point is that uh, if, if he just, he's got enough short-term treasuries to achieve the goal of reducing the size of the balance sheet, uh, the we, as we talked earlier, Foreigners are paying a lot of, of the debt of the U.S. again by buying in through the dollar. Inflation is, is increasing the revenues. And, you know, I didn't think of what you said. It, 
It's a brilliant idea. You know, let the treasuries roll off and leave the mortgages alone. Leave them right where they are because you're going to screw up the whole mortgage market. Also, because since the Fed was the primary source of money for funding the mortgage market over the last two years, you know, not only are they going to stop funding the mortgage market and start, you know, putting pressure on the mortgage market by selling these mortgages. So the reality is they should just leave the mortgages alone and do exactly what you said. I didn't think of it. Kudos to you, Matt. <laughs> Congratulations, Matt. <laughs> Hopefully they take my advice. <laughs> Dick, where does rising interest rates fit into this whole big picture? Well, it, 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 it's, it hurts a whole bunch of people, but it also helps a whole bunch of people. You know, remember, you know, when interest rates fell, all these senior citizens, they, they had on television were buying dog food because they couldn't afford to buy, you know, and this was born before inflation, because, you know, their income had been devastated by the U.S. government, um, by the Federal Reserve, allowing interest rates to get that low. If interest rates start to rise, their incomes will rise, and that's a benefit. On the other hand, if companies are not able to pass along the cost of the higher rate of interest, then that will be a problem which will affect you know, workers' pay, which will affect the economy. And unfortunately, I think that will be the first impact. And the second impact, which is people benefiting by the increase in rates, will, will come later. So I, I think one of the impacts of the increase in interest rates will be to heighten the, inf the likelihood of a recession. Yeah, but they're going to continue with these rate increases to also curb prices. That's the whole overall strategy, correct? Yeah, they, they will. Uh, but the biggest impact will come from shrinking their balance sheet. In other words, when you shrink the balance sheet, you, you stop the growth in money supply, and that has a major impact on the economy. Whereas I don't think if interest rates went to 2.5%, it would be any great crisis for this, for this economy. So watch the Fed balance sheet. That's the crucial thing to be aware of here. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And, and, and now we've been saying that here, you know, week after week, but it was interesting that this morning on CNBC, uh, the uh, economist, a very, a very smart lady from Morgan Stanley said the same thing. And I hadn't heard anyone say that previously, but she, she said that uh, the Fed has talked a lot about shrinking the balance sheet, but it hasn't done anything about it. And when it does do something about it, there will be an impact. Well, we've discussed this earlier, but the rise in prices across various sectors, are just incredible, skyrocketing prices. And you have additional numbers, but energy up 130%, meat up 30%, grain 30%, precious metals bucking the trend and are down 17.7%, cryptocurrencies down 14 to 74%. Dollar is the only major currency that is up 14%. Yeah, no, no. I mean, basically, that's that's the problem that we're dealing with. Uh, that you know, there there are two sides to that equation. Also, the problem we're dealing with is we've got to stop those price increases. Those price increases are killing the um, average American household. And again, if the Fed is owned by the American public, they'll do something to stop it. But what is fascinating me is you know if we have any wiggle room in that dollar you know, the price of gold and silver are going to move up meaningfully rapidly. Uh, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be watching very quickly from an investment standpoint. By the way, I, I had a bright idea, Dick, on, on the uh, 
balance sheet, the Fed balance sheet, treasuries mature at maturity and are paid off at, at par. Mortgages are paid down monthly. If they have $2.6 trillion of mortgages, they could probably get their $35 billion of amortization just through amortization and payoff slowly so they can reduce the balance sheet um, radically rather than having to do sales to get the, the, the $35 billion. Yeah, that's right. In other words, if, if they simply let the mortgages run off, uh, they won't run into the problem of having to show that they didn't value them correctly because you know they, they will get paid par you know when, when they run off. But uh, if they decide to move more aggressively, and, and given the structure of their holdings of mortgage securities, I think they're going to have to sell mortgages. And if they're going to sell mortgages, th- then they've got this problem. Yeah, and I, I guess what I think that what they'll do is because because of the point you made, I don't think they're ever going to be selling mortgages ever. I, I, they can't afford to. They won't be able to do it. And I think running off will be the solution. And if they have to get to a spot where they have to implement other tools, they'll probably go for yield curve control ahead of selling mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's going to be extremely dangerous if the Fed starts selling securities. Um, in this case, mortgage back. If, if the Fed gets into a position where it's selling securities at a loss, that's that's going to have uh, that's going to have a very bad impact because you know the Fed's equity will be wiped out and that will impact the value of the dollar and it, there'll be a whole bunch of follow-on things that happen. So the Fed, I don't think. Can can do what it says in terms of selling mortgage-backed securities. It's got to it's got to do. It has to do what you said. It's got to let them run off. Number one, uh, as they mature, and number two, they've got to focus more on the treasuries as as they will uh, than, than, than focusing on the mortgages. Given what you just said earlier, Dick, on shrinking the Fed balance sheet, it must be difficult to even lay out some forecasts on where prices are headed. And we'll have new uh, reading of inflation in the coming days. Um, I would hope everybody will is welcoming some reduction in prices. But where do you see prices headed? Are, are there various scenarios that could play out? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the position that the Fed will do what is necessary to shrink its balance sheet and increase interest rates so that we will have a recession and inflation will be beaten. And therefore, I think we are at the peak of, of the cycle in inflation. In other words, it's based upon the belief that, that the Fed understands the risk and doesn't have any political need not to do what they need to do for two reasons. Number one, as we said before, Powell cannot be fired. Powell, uh, you know, is, is, is an older guy, obviously, he's an old man like me. And and the fact of the matter is that he's going to be playing for his legacy. He's going to be playing for history. But even if he isn't, he got called to the White House, as, as we discussed last week. And I'm sure that the president said, you know, if you don't get inflation under control, you know, the Democrats have lost the House, they've lost the Senate, they may lose it anyway, but they're going to definitely lose it if you don't get inflation under control. So, you know, get it under control, right? Uh, in other words, there's a political need on the part of the president to get it under control. There's a, there's a you know, a posterity need on the part of a Powell to get it under control. I think he will get it under control because it can be done. He knows how to do it, and I do believe he will do it. Uh, and if he doesn't do it, all of us are going to suffer. Quite significant, um, the number of headlines on this quote-unquote pending recession that everybody's anticipating. I guess 
in the past week or so, JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon seemed to take the lead, at least in the media, with his uh, pretty colourful phrase, a hurricane is coming. But it was so, if you read his statement, it was so nuanced. It could be mild, it could be terrible, it could be... But recession seems imminent. And Dick, you believe it's going to be a mild recession. Yeah, I do. Because if you take a look at, uh, you know... uh, since, since I look at banks more closely than anything else, uh, on one side, you've got uh, Jamie Dimon, John Waldron, who's the COO of Goldman Sachs, Jane Frazier, who's the CEO of Citigroup, saying, watch out, there's a problem here, right? On the other side, you've got Brian uh, Moynihan, who's the CEO of Bank of America, saying, don't worry, the consumer is in good shape. Now, I think that if you think about the nature of the two sets of companies, the, the Cassandras are in companies that are associated with the market, right? With Wall Street, the uh, the, the if if you were to go beyond, uh, you know, Bank of America and take a look at uh, local banks around the country, you know, they're, they're in in the Bank of America case. It's not going to be that bad because the economy is not in horrible condition. The consumer does have money. You get rid of inflation. You know, this recession should not be severe. It should be uh, moderate. And if you if if the government does do what we're hoping or what I'm hoping, which is start to work and what Matt is saying, if it starts to work more closely with industry and we get, you know, manufacturing going, defense spending going, I think the future will be very bright. Uh, and, you know, I think it'll be, a, I don't think it's going to be a hurricane. I, I think that uh, it'll be a moderate, a moderate short-lived recession and a big major recovery coming out of it, which will be very positive. At least that's, that's the way I'm looking at it. I think we all hope you're right. We certainly do. What we've run out of time, Dick and Matt, another great conversation. Uh, covered a lot here and learned a lot. And next week, we'll be back for another episode, episode 21 of Odeon Capital Conversations. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.